The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. Now, it's no secret that, that some people don't like small talk. Don't like it? Casey, everybody hates it. Except for us. We love to chit-chat bullshit, and that's why we wrote this book. Well, it's an audiobook. You're welcome. Who has the time to read? Not me. There will be research, but not too much, because what is this, a book report? We'll also hear from learned scholars like Malcolm Gladwell and from the most important people in the world, celebs like Amy Poehler, Tony Hale, June Diane Raphael, and Colin Quinn. You can grab your copy of The Art of Small Talk today at pushkin.fm slash smalltalk or wherever you get your audiobooks. Don't forget, you can listen with your Audible and Spotify memberships too. The Art of Small Talk. How to go shallow to go deep. Pushkin. I'm Maeve Higgins, and this is Solvable, interviews with the world's most innovative thinkers who are working to solve the world's biggest problems. Now, if this program were airing in the early 1980s, and I told you that the problem of how to treat those with HIV could be solved, you'd laugh in my face. You might even call me a quack. Now, that would be mean because I would be a baby. But remember, back then... HIV and AIDS were a terrifying epidemic. And one of the worst things was that people didn't recognize anything familiar about this new communicable disease that was laying waste to so many different groups around the world. But discovering the secrets of HIV AIDS and devising treatments for it did turn out to be solvable. For this episode, Malcolm Gladwell spoke to a man whose work was crucial to making that possible. He's one of the most influential figures in 20th century science. Uh, my name is David Baltimore. I am a professor at the California Institute of Technology, known fondly as Caltech. And I, early on in my career, figured out that viruses in their desire to grow floridly have taken advantage of all sorts of molecular tricks. 
And one of them was to copy RNA into DNA, which violated the central dogma of molecular biology, but set cancer research in a new direction. Now, he sounds pretty cool about it, but it was for this discovery that David Baltimore was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine, along with Renato Del Becco and Howard Termin. Now, remember that name. You'll hear a lot about Howard Termin. The work they did, independently of one another, proved that what was known then as the central dogma, that genetic information carried in the building blocks of life, RNA and DNA, only travelled one way, from DNA to RNA to protein, they found out that was wrong. And that knowledge enabled them to solve the mystery of how viruses cause cancer. They discovered what are known as retroviruses. And these viruses turned normal cells into cancer cells permanently by altering their DNA. David Baltimore did this work decades before the AIDS epidemic, but it was this research that made the discovery and treatment of HIV possible, something he had no idea of at the time. Malcolm Gladwell actually covered Baltimore's work when he was a science journalist for the Washington Post in the early 1990s, during the race for HIV and AIDS treatments that was really a matter of public desperation. One question that stayed with Malcolm from that time, how were these scientists ready to mobilise so quickly around such a new and terrifying problem? To answer that question, let's go right back to the beginning, to the 1960s, when Baltimore and other scientists were getting their start. They had no idea that their work would later help the world understand something it so desperately needed to. They followed the scientific method and their own curiosity wherever that led. And sometimes the results put them at odds with the dogma of their own field. So let's meet the 23-year-old David Baltimore who had become fascinated by animal viruses and took a course on them at Cold Spring Harbor Labs. Here's Malcolm's conversation with David Baltimore. I mean, I had lots of questions, and but I was pretty clear that those questions were things that were going to drive my life and that I understood them well enough to be ready to do that. When you go to Cold Spring to study animal viruses, what viruses are you studying? And is this all mouse models or what is? What is? Uh, it's a lot's mouse models or cells. You could grow viruses in cells. And so those were the objects that we worked on. Polio or polio-like viruses were one part. And I ended up doing my thesis on a polio-like virus. Mm-hmm. There were a class of viruses with membranes around them that brought us into membrane biology and very different sorts of considerations very rich. And so we worked with those. Newcastle disease virus was one of those. And then there were viruses that caused cancer, and in particular, the Rouse sarcoma virus. Your kind of self-assuredness about what it is you wanted to do, how much of that is you, and how much of that is a function of the fact that the field is in its infancy, and so a 23-year-old's guess is as good as anyone's, right? <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. Um, it would be different if you were entering an incredibly mature field. Yeah, right. It probably would. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, I can remember weeks, months, when I was doing my thesis at Rockefeller, in which I would come in in the morning and I would work on an idea and set up experiments and read those out a couple of days later and discover something brand new. 
And you couldn't do that in a mature field of science because other people would have done it before you. But nobody had done these sorts of things. Ralph's sarcoma virus enters back into our story yeah. some years into the future. So I'm curious about this as a non-scientist. You encounter this virus early on in your career. In retrospect, you realize, am I, am I phrasing this correctly? In retrospect, you realize you never really understood it? Or you only saw a portion of it? Or how would you describe your primitive understanding of that virus in retrospect? I was not interested in it as a, an experimental object. First of all, it was a hard virus to work with. Why was it hard? It didn't grow very well. It didn't, you didn't get as much material. And, and I had not yet been captured by the problem of cancer. I just didn't think about it much. And so as part of this course, it was something that we focused attention on. But I never really thought about it then for another 10 years almost. Yeah. While I worked out the sort of basic molecular biology of a variety of other viruses, and then I came back because at that point, we knew the basic lifestyle of most viruses. But now the cancer-inducing viruses stood out as different and hard to understand. What was different and hard to understand about them? Well, the fundamental thing was that they had uh, RNA as their genome, and yet they were able to establish a permanent position inside the cell and run the cell. So they turned it from a normal cell to a, to a cancer cell. There were DNA viruses that could do that, and yet it was an RNA virus. And that didn't make sense. Howard had been driven by that question for 10 years previously. He first formulated that question when he was, uh, during the time he was graduating from Caltech. Mm -hmm. It was a, a relatively easy jump for him to say the RNA must be copied into DNA. And then he spent about 10 years at University of Wisconsin trying to find an experiment that would convince anybody else of that. And he couldn't. So Temin has sort of, there's 10 years in the wilderness, mm -hmm. and he's not getting a lot of encouragement from the scientific community in those 10 years. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the papers he's publishing are not convincing. So this is, is it sort of tribute to his own innate stubbornness, his own... He convinced himself on some theoretical level that there must be something there. Because he was driven by that, by his observation yeah. that the virus controlled the behavior of the cells. Only genes control the behavior of cells. And so the virus had to put its information in the form of genes. And DNA was the form of genes. Yeah. He sort of religiously believed that therefore the information in RNA had to be read to DNA. Yeah. And he wasn't much of a chemist. He didn't think like a biochemist. He thought like a geneticist. So the idea that RNA could template DNA made sense to him as words, but he had never actually done an experiment that looked at that. I, on the other hand, had spent those 10 years doing that form of experiment with all sorts of different biological materials. 
in all sorts of different ways, that was my bread and butter. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's talk about your entry into this. Mm-hmm. So Don Quixote is up in Wisconsin, tilting on a windmill. Yes. And <laughs> David Baltimore decides to join in the windmill tilting. Mm-hmm. At what point do you does this battle attract you? Uh, I, I mean, I know exactly what form because I had been working on a virus called vesiculostomatitis virus, and we had discovered that it's the complement of the sense strand of RNA. So it's a senseless strand that acts solely as a template to make sense strands, and if you think about that, a virus like that can't just go into a cell and take over the cell because it has to copy its RNA into messenger RNA. And the only way it can do that is if either the cell has an enzyme to do that, and we had looked for such an enzyme and could never find one, or if the enzyme was in the virus particle. So I had looked for it in the virus particle and found that the virus particle had an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase that copied the senseless strand into sense strand. And that's clearly how infection got started, and suddenly I opened up a whole field of negative strand viruses. So now it became trivial to say, well, you know, maybe Howard has something. Let's have a look at the virus particles of RNA tumor viruses. They might have an enzyme that copies RNA to DNA. Oh, I see. Once you had made the insight that these viruses are carrying around their own photocopiers or whatever it is. Yeah, right. They have a little, a little in-house Xerox. And you're like, oh, let's just look for the, maybe these are everywhere mm-hmm. versions of them. Mm-hmm. The minute you find the, en- the enzyme in the one you're working on, is it instant that you think about what Howard's doing? Or is it something you that pops into your head six months later? I'm just so curious about that kind of, what does that insight mean? I think it wasn't very long. We did one other thing first, which is we wanted to extend it to other viruses that looked the same in the electron microscope. And we found a number of other negative strand viruses right away. Mm-hmm. And then I said, where else can we carry this idea to? And I said, well, how about RNA tumor viruses? How hard was it to find this particular enzyme? Is, that a, is it trivial? Oh, really? Yeah. It's really the, it's two really days, the notion of- Two it. days of experiments. Two days? Yeah. So it's just the idea of knowing where to look. Yeah, and what to look for. And what to look for. Right. Naive and weird question. Do you know what you've done at the time? Yeah. I, I knew what we had done in terms of cancer. It was clear that we had broken open cancer research. I didn't know- what else we'd done. HIV hadn't been discovered. I didn't know we had mm-hmm. set up the understanding of HIV. I didn't know that the genome of humans in all organisms has lots of reverse transcribed DNA in it, comes from various sources. So it was much richer and more complex than I could say with any assurance, mm-hmm. except for the implications for, for cancer. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about HIV for a moment and do a kind of alternate history. Mm. If HIV arrives as a force 10 years earlier, in 67, not 77, what happens? 
scientifically, medically? Disaster. The worst thing that can happen, and it was proved in the HIV epidemic, is not to know what's causing a disease because that gives liberty to fantasy. And one person's fantasy is as good as another's. So you don't know who to believe. The public doesn't know what to believe. You don't know how it's spread. You don't know if it is infectious. The early days of the, of the HIV epidemic, there were all sorts of theories about homosexual sex, poppers, drugs people were taking. Until you knew it was a virus, you didn't know how to intervene. You didn't know what to do to protect yourself. So HIV is more than a virus. It's a retrovirus, and it's operating by the very principles that you and Temin uncovered. But absent that knowledge, we could know it was infectious and know it was a virus, but not be able to... We couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. You can't find it unless you know it's this particular class of... Right. It was the search for reverse transcriptase in the virus particles that opened up the knowledge that it was a virus that was causing the disease. Yeah, yeah. And then secondarily, you can't even begin to design drugs against it. Because aren't am I yes. right that the first wave of successful drugs are all those that and, are... And a reverse transcriptase. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they are attacking this very... Right. Uh, vulnerability. They're nucleotide analogs. So they, they look like pieces of RNA. Describe in the most... Or DNA. I mean, yes. Describe the mechanism of that first wave of successful anti-HIV drugs. The way that you copy RNA into DNA is by copying one nucleotide at a time into its complement by the complementary rules that had been laid down by Watson and Crick that A pairs with T and G pairs with C. What these drugs were, were analogs of the ATGC that fit into the slot where the copying went on, but then couldn't be extended further. So they terminated the growth of the DNA chain. And they are, that's what they're called, chain terminators. But, and the, the theoretical basis for that entire operation is the understanding that this is a virus that is operating through the principles of reverse transcription. Right. Yes. right. If you didn't know that, if you didn't ask that question, you wouldn't have found the virus and we would have been in the wilderness. Yeah. So if it had come about 10 years earlier, before we had the reverse transcriptase, it would have been a lot longer before we understood that it was a virus. In fact, I don't know how long it would have been. I'm wondering whether, once the sort of dust settles on the discovery of reverse transcriptase, is there a moment when your mind wanders and you start to think about all of the long... Like, I know you said immediately it was clear it was going to have an impact on cancer, but did it ever, for example, did it ever out of the blue occur to you that, wow, what if we did have a consequential virus that came along that operated, that was a retrovirus... Now we're in a much stronger... I mean, I wonder, do you, did you ever game out any of these scenarios in your mind? Not, not a whole lot because we had enough to think about. No, I then became passionately interested in how you copy an RNA into a DNA. And when I say how, there are all sorts of details of that process that are just fascinating molecular biology. 
And so there was an area of my lab which focused on that. Mm -hmm. The other thing we focused on was retroviruses and their ability to cause cancer because we had opened up a field and I wanted to be part of that field. And so I went out on a hunt for a mouse virus that was as good as Rouse sarcoma virus as an object of study, but you could do it in the context of mouse genetics. And so you really could take advantage of, of the whole history of, of mouse biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found one. And Which was? It's called Abelson murine leukemia virus. Yeah. And it was the secret to understanding chronic myelogenous leukemia in the end. I mean, because it turned out to be a virus that used an enzyme that was part of a very serious human disease. But I didn't know that at the time. I mean, it was just a model that fit what I wanted to do in the lab. So I didn't think a whole lot about where where else there might be viruses like this. And there were so many other people doing that right away. Coming back to HIV for a moment, when it comes time to construct these antivirals for HIV, they're obviously borrowing the central scientific insight here. Are they also, though, borrowing from all of this subsequent filling in all the gaps work? I mean, if you were saying you then got really interested in how this process of... Yeah. Are they, are they taking that work and using that to help construct work drugs? like it? Construct drugs, yeah. yes. Yeah. 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 For instance, the integrase, I mean, we didn't discover integrase, but working out the details of, of reverse transcription, ultimately you come to something which has to go into the nucleus and associate itself with the DNA in the nucleus. And that was an integrase. So integrase inhibitors turn out to be the very best drugs. And there were a number of others. Protease is a protease that's very important, cutting up proteins into bite-sized pieces. And if you inhibit that, you can prevent the virus from growing. And so there are protease inhibitors. So yeah, every aspect of the virus that we've ever studied then lends itself to the, to the development of drugs. Yeah. At the time you're doing all this work, how large is your lab? Oh, it's about five or six people. It's you. A couple of students, uh, a couple of postdocs. It's tiny. It's small. I mean, I had only just moved to MIT in 68. Yeah. So uh, I didn't yet have a sort of pipeline of people coming into the lab. What grants are you have, do you have at that moment? I have grants from NIH largely to do work on, on mangovirus and poliovirus. I don't think I got any grants. I certainly didn't get a grant to work on RNA tumor viruses. And I, we did the negative strand virus work without grants. We just used the money we had from other sources. What, how large are those grants? This is late 60s. Oh, they're probably... $100,000 was a lot of money in those days. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember. Do you... When you said... When you made that an observation, you're like, oh, maybe that is explains what Temin has been puzzling over. I love the way in which... So the two of you contribute beautifully to this to the success of this yeah. problem coming from different directions. If Temin hadn't been puzzling over it, would that thought still have been in the back of your mind? 
Perhaps not. Yeah. If nobody had been thinking about it, would I have come to it? I don't know. It's, it's a very hard hypothetical to, yeah. partly because I, as I said, I knew, knew about Howard's interest in work for that whole 10 year period. So yeah. if you ask what was going on in virology, that was one thing going on in yeah. virology. I'm curious about what has that experience taught you about the way science ought to be structured? Well, one of the most important things to me is that young people often do things that are sort of off the beaten track and can produce real change in the way we think. And so it's very important to give young people that opportunity. And that the way we've structured the educational process in science we don't give people enough independence early enough in their careers to take full advantage of the time when I think you sort of naturally have the most creative opportunities. And so the fact that I was, and I'm, I'm partly modeling that statement on my own life because I managed to get that kind of independence from very early on. Mm -hmm partly because of the people I chose to work with, partly because I was, I guess, fairly aggressive about it. And so I was making my own decisions in science from uh, the time I really started out. Uh, most people don't get that opportunity. And most people probably can't handle it, but there are more people who can handle it than, than are given the opportunity. So I have, as I've gone on and built institutions, tried to build into that the opportunity for young people to get that kind of freedom as early as possible so that they can take advantage of the time when I think they're most creative. And, and they're also least burdened by personal responsibility. And today, when people get out of their training, they're 35 if they're lucky by which time they have families and they have all sorts of other responsibilities. And I think that, that's a shame. Does a, a young David Baltimore in 2019 have a harder or easier time of it than a David Baltimore in 1959? I think it's, it's harder now, but it's not impossible. One thing I set up that a lot of places have, have emulated is a fellows program at the Whitehead Institute, which I started which is an, a time that people can be independent and yet not have done a postdoc. And only the very best people are accepted in it. And it's just turned out one after another great people. Thank you very much. <laughs> There's something I should tell you, because I don't think you know it. And that's actually what happened the day after I made the discovery. Oh. Nixon invaded Cambodia. and. MIT went on strike, and I was in the streets supporting my graduates, getting them out of jail, leading groups marching down the streets of Cambridge for uh, about five days. And then I came back to the lab, thought it all out, and finished the experiments. <laughs> what, a, what a strange world we live in. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> 
This episode, to me, really highlights how a scientist's curiosity, conviction and creativity can all combine to one day help somebody face perhaps the most devastating diagnosis they'll ever have to face. And also it made me think about how giving young scientists a chance to make their own choices and to be creative, even when they're early on in their careers, when expertise and experience seems to be extremely important, that's good too. And also, of course, as David Baltimore pointed out, it takes more than one person's work to come up with actual treatments that end up saving lives. The intellectual generosity he's shown throughout his career and now into his teaching life is exciting to think about. And it gives me hope that many more problems we once saw as the end of the road are, in fact, solvable. Now, if you're interested, Malcolm Gladwell has actually dedicated an episode of his podcast, Revisionist History, to the story of the search for retroviruses. And it features David Baltimore. It's called The Obscure Virus Club. I hope you'll go and listen. Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation, with production by Laura Hyde, Hester Kant, Laura Sheeter, and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia LaBelle, research by Sher Vincent, engineering by Jason Gambrell and the great folks at GSI Studios. Original music composed by Pascal Wise and special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fine, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about solving today's biggest problems at rockefellerfoundation.org slash solvable. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. Now, it's no secret that, that some people don't like small talk. Don't like it? Casey, everybody hates it. Except for us. We love to chit-chat bullshit, and that's why we wrote this book. Well, it's an audiobook. You're welcome. Who has the time to read? Not me. There will be research, but not too much, because what is this, a book report? We'll also hear from learned scholars like Malcolm Gladwell and from the most important people in the world, celebs like Amy Poehler, Tony Hale, June Diane Raphael, and Colin Quinn. You can grab your copy of The Art of Small Talk today at pushkin.fm slash smalltalk or wherever you get your audiobooks. Don't forget, you can listen with your Audible and Spotify memberships too. The Art of Small Talk. How to go shallow to go deep.